Thank you, Katie, for reading fabulously. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sumani Megadi. For those of you that are new, I am one of the pastors here at Church of the Resurrection. Let us pray before we begin. Father, we seek your mercy. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word, to accept it, to apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, good morning. Um, our Epiphany series, Practicing Kingdom Diplomacy, has taken us through Romans chapter 12 and 11 so far. We have seen that we have been given this gift of transformational worship. We surrender to God because of what he's done for us. We've also seen that he's given us all these gifts that we're supposed to use to serve one another, to maintain our unity with one another. And then we are told that we should love one another, even those who are intent on hurting us, on harming us, on persecuting us. And then last week, Dan talked about how we're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities. They're, they're there as God's ministers. They're supposed to punish evil and reward good. And so we're subject to them. And that's part of the reason why we pay taxes, because they're giving their attention to doing justly. That's what we've, we've talked about so far. In a perfect world, the governing authorities would do just that. You know, they would punish evil and reward good. We don't live in a perfect world, do we? We don't. So it's not possible, in fact, for us to live in a perfect world because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The governing authorities come from among the people, and the people themselves are all sinners. So what do we expect, right? So we ask the question, what happens when the governing authority asks us to do something that doesn't seem right, that seems like it's against conscience, against truth? Are we still supposed to submit? I think that Romans chapter, eight verse, uh, Romans chapter 13 from verse 8 to 14 is a partial answer to that question. It's an interesting passage because it serves as a bridge between 12 and chapter 13. And Paul answers this question partially. You see, God wants us to be law-abiding citizens, definitely, wherever we go. The thing is, citizens are subject to the laws of the country that they belong to, and when they fail to obey those laws, well, there are consequences. They are punished. But we're not primarily citizens of the United States, or Nigeria, or Ethiopia, or Malaysia, or insert your country here. We're not. We are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven. Our relationship to our host country on this side of eternity is ambassadorial. All of us are diplomats. All of us who have surrendered to Jesus Christ are diplomats. And diplomats have a unique relationship um, with the laws of the land in which their mission is located. In most countries, diplomats have immunity and are not subject to criminal, administrative, and civil laws, mostly. But they are still subject to the laws of their own lands. So though God expects us to be subject to authorities as 
diplomats, we are first and foremost subject to the law of heaven, to the law of our home country, the kingdom of God. That takes precedence over the laws of the land all the time, hands down. So we look to the law of, we look to the law of love, the law of heaven as our final authority for life and godliness. So today we're going to talk about that. How are we going to be law-abiding citizens of the kingdom of heaven as Christians in a foreign land, as diplomats here in DC? Romans 13, verse eight to 14 tells us how, and it tells us why. So first, the how. Verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. A very famous cricket once, once said, let conscience be your guide. There's a whole song about it, it's really cool. Um, I think we can take that a little further and say that God wants us as Christians that are law-abiding in a foreign land to let love be our guide, specifically love of our neighbor. You see, verse 8 says that we shouldn't owe anyone anything. The Bible is not against loans and mortgages. It's not against uh, borrowing. That's not what it's saying. It is saying, though, that if you are in debt, get out as soon as possible. Um, but there is one thing that we are going to forever owe each other, no matter what we do, and that's love. If you give me something on loan, I owe you that thing until I pay that thing back. That's how debt works. But that's not how the debt of love works. Jane Doe does not owe love to John Smith because John Smith has shown her love. No. The origin of our debt towards each other isn't located in our relationship with one another. It isn't located in a horizontal relationship. It's located in our vertical relationship with God. Here's the logic of it. Since we have experienced God's love, our reasonable response is to surrender, surrender to him, and he wants to transform us to make us into the image of Jesus Christ. And as we become more and more like Jesus Christ, we want to obey the law of God, and he gives us the ability to obey his law. Now, the thing is that if we want to fulfill the law, that shows that we love God, because like Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, right? But here's the thing. All the law, the full thing, is summarized in love God and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the reason that we are loving other people is because God has loved us, and we want to show him love by obeying his commands. I mean, the passage that we read in Leviticus this morning, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 to 18, you have these lists of laws, and then punctuated about five times at the end of each segment is, I am the Lord. It's like, the reason you're doing this is because I am the Lord. That sentence was supposed to remind the Israelites, here's what I've done for you. Because of what I've done for you, here's what you're going to do to each other and for each other. So the reason we owe each other is because of our relationship with God, what he's done for us. But in the words of the Egyptian church father, Urgen, the debt of love is permanent, and we are never quit of it, for we must pay it daily and yet always owe it. We're never going to get to the point where we're like, oh, 
I've paid back my loan of love. I'm off the hook. I pray you say that with all your school loans, of course. But we're never going to get to that point with love. And the truth is, we shouldn't want to be off the hook with this particular debt. If we think about what God has done for us and we still desire to be off the hook, that means we don't understand the depth of his love for us. And our understanding of what he's done is actually pretty shallow. Gratitude is the reason why we do what we do. And if we understand what he's done, our gratitude will be infinite, very deep. We want to remain in this particular debt. Besides, the love that we give to other people, it's not like we're, it's not like we're taking out of our bank account. We don't lose anything when we love other people. Romans 5 verse 5 says that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the love we show to people. There's an eternal reservoir of love in us to show to other people. Isn't it interesting that the one we owe gives us the currency by which we'll pay him back? It's nice. <laughs> so law-abiding Christians are guided by love for our neighbor. That means two things. The first thing it means is that submission to the governing authority has one powerful condition. We cannot do anything that will harm our neighbor. We cannot. Verses 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, certain Roman laws instituted by the governing authorities were laudable, even though sometimes they were ill-intentioned with some severe consequences. For example, there was this particular law that excluded people from office in the case of electoral corruption. Another law punished adultery among the upper classes by banishment, sometimes even death. Again, sometimes severe consequences, but to a degree, Christians could get behind some of these kinds of law, to a degree. But not all the laws were like this. For example, um, Cicero, Roman philosopher, he mentions a Roman law which prohibited converting a Roman to an unrecognized religion. He said, no person shall have any separate gods or new ones nor shall he privately worship any strange gods unless they be publicly allowed. This was surely antithetical to the, to the law of love because first of all, it stood against the first three commandments of scripture, which summed up, love the Lord your God, and it prevented Christians from converting Romans to Christianity. That, to not desire someone to become saved, to not do that, that's not love. It's not love at all. So this, there are some laws that stand against the law of love, even in their own context. For various reasons, there are similar laws like this in countries all around the world today. There are places where it is even illegal to be a Christian. I mean, every Sunday we pray for the persecuted church and her persecutors all around the world. Some of these people, day in, day out, are struggling, and they necessarily have to disobey the law of the land because the call, the gospel call of the Great Commission is much, much more important than the laws of the land. They've been ridiculed for it, jailed, beaten. Some have been tortured. 
Some have been killed for it. Many live in fear that they're going to be next, that they're going to die next as a result of disobeying the law, and yet they persevere. They persevere because they know that the law of love requires them to disobey unjust laws. If they don't disobey these laws, they do a disservice to themselves, to those who are watching, and to their persecutors because they're not showing them love. Now, in our own context, we probably don't have consequences as, as dire as the loss of our life. But there may be times that the law of love demands that we disobey the law of the land because we don't want to do harm to our neighbor. But we need to be willing to face the consequences. So again, sometimes the law of the land goes against the law of love. But sometimes some things aren't enshrined in the law necessarily, but they're approved by society. And they go against the law of love. Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You see, if love your neighbor as yourself fulfills the law, then the, these things are forbidden by the law. That means that doing these things don't show love to your neighbor and they don't show love to you as a person either. Getting drunk, participating in or orgies, being sexually immoral, succumbing to jealousy is not a way of loving your neighbor or yourself. For the Romans, for the Romans, Roman Christians, these things were naturally part of their society. It was things that were, uh, society expected people to behave in this particular ways. For example, a normal Roman dinner among the upper class included carousing. There were tables reserved for drinking bouts and activities with prostitutes. And again, hear what Cicero says about the parties of young men who were coming of age. If there is anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs, even with courtesans, he is doubtless eminently austere, but his view is not only contrary to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. This was normal behavior. They expected it. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Because we are supposed to be law-abiding citizens of the kingdom first and foremost, we have to avoid these kinds of behavior. We cannot join society when it invites us into its flood of debauchery or di dissipation. With wisdom, with discernment, we need to learn how to not participate in those things, to refuse to obey, dis to obey laws that express that do not express love to our neighbor or to ourselves, and we should be able to stand against anything that says otherwise with wisdom and discernment. So love your neighbor as yourself. Let love be your guide. Who is my neighbor? That's a question that somebody asked Jesus in a parable in Luke chapter 10. And I love, the, I love that story, so I'm going to just summarily tell you what that story is. 
there's this guy, and he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He might be a Jew. We don't know. The story doesn't say. On his way there, he's waylaid by robbers. He's robbed. He's beaten violently <clears throat> and left half dead in this dangerous road. Along comes a priest, a revered figure, respected figure among the Jews. He sees him, and for very good reason, he passes by. This is an unsafe place. Along comes a Levite, sees him, for very good reason, passes by. This is an unsafe place. I have responsibilities to do. I can't be unclean. Then comes a Samaritan. Samaritan sees him, has compassion on this neighbor, on this person that he doesn't know, puts him on his donkey, uh, treats him, first of all, with oil and wine, bandages his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, pay, takes care of him, pays the innkeeper to continue to take care of him in his absence, and then says he's coming back to check up on him. A complete and total stranger. In this story, the Samaritan's neighbor is this man. Again, we don't know if he was a Jew, but if he was, that means that he was racially and ethnically and ideologically an enemy of the Samaritan. The Samaritan didn't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. That didn't matter. He had compassion on this man. This man, he was on, on the verge of death. And that's what, the Samaritan, that's what the Samaritan saw. He was on the verge of death. And it cost him his safety. It cost him his money. And it cost him his time to minister to this person that he did not know. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the answer was, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor. So like the Samaritan, we shouldn't worry so much about who our neighbors are. We should be more concerned about being a neighbor to everyone, everyone, which actually means that the priest and the Levite in that story were the Samaritan's neighbor as well. In our own context, it's actually easier to show love to the revered people and respected people in our communities, in our, in our, in our society, you know, the priests and the Levites. It's often easy to forget those who are left half dead. We don't think about them or it's too, it's too uncomfortable, or it's too unsafe, or it costs too much time and money to help them out. Eyes of compassion. We need to have those. So how do we live as law-abiding citizens of the kingdom? Let love be your guide. Do no harm to your neighbor. And everybody is your neighbor. All right, so that was the first point. Second point, the why. Why do we do this? And this is found in verses 11 to 14. Paul says, Besides this, you know, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us, let us walk uh, properly in the day, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I want to highlight four important things from this section. First of all, Paul says, you know the time. 
There's something about that statement that clarifies the object of our attention. Every Christian should be aware of the time, should be aware that Christ is coming back at any moment, and we should live like it. Paul says the same thing again, same, says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. As Christians, we cannot live our lives like the people who say peace and safety. We cannot be like the people during Noah's day who were living their lives, normal lives, unresponsive to Noah's call, Noah's call for repentance. They ignored him when he said imminent judgment was coming. We cannot be like the five virgins who fell asleep waiting for the bridegroom to show up. We have to have this awareness, constant awareness, that Jesus Christ is coming back. The second thing Paul says about this, about Christ's inevitable return, is that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And this is true for every Christian. Now, the point isn't whether Paul thought that Jesus was going to come back during his lifetime or 4,000 years into the future. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus Christ is coming back. That's it. And his coming back is nearer now to us than when we first believed. He will come back. The certainty of the fact is the point. But here's the other thing. Even if Jesus Christ doesn't come back in our lifetime, our diplomatic mission on earth is going to end, and he's going to call us back home at any time he could do that. And that should spur us to love one another. It's difficult to hear. It's hard to say, but none of us are guaranteed that we are going to make it to tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed that, and we should be aware of that, and that should motivate us to love people. Third, the command to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light because the end is nigh, that command isn't an ultimatum. It's not a do this or else. And scripture makes it very clear. Romans itself makes it very clear. We're not doing this to win God's favor. Not at all. Rather, we're doing this because Christ has already fulfilled the law. And he's given us the ability to be righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he wants the world to see that. And out of gratitude for him and our desire to see others come to faith in Christ, we then put on the armor of light and cast off the works of darkness. We want them to see the light. We want Jesus to, to, to see our gratitude for what he's done for us. So this is not an ultimatum. It is a show of gratitude on our own part that we have very little time to show love to our neighbor. So let's do it now. 
And then lastly, we're told to put on the armor of light in verse 12. And then we're told to put on Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14. Same thing. The armor is Christ. Verse 14 is actually a summary of everything that Paul has said so far in, in chapters 12 and 13. Put on Christ. It's a summary. Uh, fun fact, fun nerdy fact, this was the verse that converted St. Augustine. He became a Christian from reading this verse. I thought that was cool. Anyway, um, a particular verse reminds me of red carpet events at, at award shows. You know, Red carpet is rolled out. Celebrities show up in fantastic attire, uh, in terrific, beautiful attire, in confusing, awkward attire, in way out of their attire. And then you have all these reporters with their cameras and their microphones coming up to people asking many, many questions. And one of the questions that is often asked is, who are you wearing? Not what are you wearing, but who are you wearing? And I think understandably so, that particular question has lost favor in the past few years. But it served two purposes, actually. People who were watching these award shows didn't have to wonder, where did she get that dress? And then the people who actually designed the dresses got, got credit for their work. You know, they got, they got marketing. It was great. You and I, as diplomats on this particular side of eternity, are supposed to act in such a way that when people look at us, they're going to ask us, who are you wearing? We're wearing Christ. About nine years ago, um, my father-in-law visited his cousin and her husband. Her husband's name is Nda. Let me short version, Nda. And um, they got talking to. They, they were reminiscing about the past, and um, they got talking about Christian hypocrisy, about how hypocrisy prevents a lot of people from coming to Christ, specifically Christian hypocrisy, and that even the children of Christians become cynical about the gospel because of the way they see Christians, their own parents, behave. And then Inda says to my father-in-law, he shares this story. Way back then, before I was born, <laughs> when he was in secondary school, high school, um, if you were in the university at that time, you were respected, you were revered, and you were placed on a pedestal. All right, so Inda was in secondary school. And my father-in-law was a university student at the time. And in between semesters, he volunteered to teach uh, at a secondary school, math and physics. And this secondary school in the remote village somewhere, I, mean, I imagine it was a derelict building, and he got no pay for it. And he was teaching at the same school that Inda went to. They never had any contact, as far as either of them know. They never talked. He, my father-in-law doesn't even remember that he was in that school at all. But, he, but here was Inda watching this university student. And he started asking. It was like He saw him lead Christian fellowship, organize and lead Christian fellowship, teaching with integrity and commitment, not doing the other things that university students were doing, but living a life of honor and integrity. And he was like, who is this guy? Why would a university student, respected and revered, volunteer to volunteer, volunteer to come to a remote village to teach math and physics to us without pay? Terrible conditions. Why would he do that? They never spoke. But nine years ago, Inda tells this story to my father-in-law. Now, Inda was a Muslim. 
But then that tells him that because of the way he conducted himself when he was in secondary school, Indah became a Christian. It was the first step towards being attracted to Christ. And my father-in-law would have never known it if, if Indah didn't end up marrying his cousin. You can just, that's kind of scary, isn't it? That people are watching us, people are watching you and me, and we might never know the impact, whether positive or negative, hopefully positive, that we have on their lives. But Indah saw Christ. He saw that my father-in-law was wearing Christ. And similarly, that's what we're supposed to do. That's the summary of how to be a law-abiding citizen of heaven in the midst of a foreign nation. The society's watching us, and they actually have a right to. Jesus has actually given them the right. They will know us by our love. He has given them the right to judge us. So, you don't have to worry about the impact you have if you just put on Christ. So that people will come to you and ask, hmm, who are you wearing? Love your neighbor, do no harm to them, and remember that Christ will come at any moment. So get all that love out. Get it all out of the world. Let's pray. It's with gratitude, Father, that we want to love our neighbors as ourselves and to abide by the laws of this land, but most importantly, by the laws of the kingdom. We pray for wisdom and discernment. We pray for a deep well of gratitude, Father, for what you have done, so that we can put on Christ and so that others will see Christ and be drawn to him that they might become law-abiding citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.